Hello and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is CNN correspondent Stephanie Brusari. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Emma. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Stephanie, you are a real media pro. What is it that made you want to be a journalist? And what sort of journalist did you want to be? Well, so I'm one of those annoying people who actually always knew what I wanted to do. So at the age of 12, actually, first I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I quickly changed to um, journalism after one of my teachers encouraged me to become a journalist because she saw that I really liked writing and I was good at it. So from that point on, I was 12. I really just determined to become a journalist. And everything I've done since that time has been geared towards um, becoming a journalist. So I'm really pleased that... um, I've managed to really achieve that major goal that I had so early on. And, you know, I was always um, really passionate about kind of speaking up for people and human rights. And I I always remember being very angry about things as a teenager. And I was one of those who would go and write letters for Amnesty in my lunch break at college doing my A-levels. So very passionate about human rights and injustice, fighting injustice. So, you know, it's something that was always early on uh, a very kind of, you know, uh, a trait of mine early on. And and that has been uh, a key component of the kind of journalism I've always done. So you are Nigerian born and you moved to the UK, as our listeners can tell by your fantastic British accent. And now you're back in Nigeria, heading up CNN's Nigeria Bureau. What story have you done that you are most proud of? Yes, so I moved back to Nigeria four years ago, and um, that coincided with the kidnapping of the Chibok girls, the Chibok um, secondary school um, students who in 2014 were kidnapped um, by Boko Haram terrorist group. And, you know, it was a story that I covered when I was still living in London. And when I moved to Nigeria, I obtained a video that showed that these girls were still alive because in the intervening two years between covering it and moving to Nigeria, you know, after getting global attention and you know, people like Michelle Obama, Malala, all of these people lending their voices to bring in back our girls. That story really just died down and I stayed on it. I, I, it was a story that disturbed me profoundly because I'm Nigerian. I went to boarding school briefly in Nigeria before I moved to the UK. And it could have been me, it could have been anyone that I knew. And so it really was a very disturbing story for me personally, and it affected me profoundly. I'd also kept in touch with family members and people who were working in, in, you know, on that story at the time. So I was able to obtain, through staying on, on that story, this video that showed that the Chibok girls were still alive, or at least some of them. And um, this video, I could never have imagined what we kick-started when when this when we obtained this video and 
senator, Nigerian senator at the time, told me that um, it was because of this video and intervening um, reporting that we did on CNN that the Chibok girls were released. So the Nigerian government entered into negotiation talks with Boko Haram. Um, and in this was in April 2016. And in October 2016, 21 Chibok girls were freed. And um, the following year, another 80 Chibok girls were freed. So when I think about this story, I'm always um, so moved by the, the, the contribution, this small contribution that we were able to make um, through the obtaining of this video. And, and just the joy, the pure joy that I saw on the parents' um, faces. You know, one, one mother uh, tried to put her daughter on the back, on her back when they were re reunited, you know. I mean, this is a grown girl. But that, that was such was the joy at reuniting with these girls that they never thought they would see again. It remains very sad for me because more than 100 of these girls are still missing. So it's, it's tinged, it's bittersweet. Uh, on the one hand, we were able to help free the, uh, more than 100 girls, but these other, other set of girls are, you know, may never gain freedom again. Um, so it's, it's a story that stays, that stayed with me. Even now I talk to some of the mothers, we just check in. I have a call with them. Uh, one of them in particular, her name is Yana Galang. She still washes her daughter's clothes every month. She washes her daughter's clothes and she's never given up hope that she will come back. And I share, I share Yana's hope that one day Rebecca, that's her daughter's name. Um, that one day she will come back. But yeah, it's, um, as journalists, you're supposed to be dispassionate and uh, detached from stories, but this is one that I've never been able to kind of detach myself from. And quite rightly so, you know, it's that passion, the passion and the, the connection that fuels uh, results in, in stories like this. And it was a story that touched all of us around the world because I think everybody could relate to their daughter being kidnapped. It's every mother's fear. And if it wasn't for journalists such as you, their story would never have been told. So it's an incredible, incredible story. Thank you. So recently, Nigeria has been in the media due to the protests against police brutality. And you've been reporting this. Do you... I mean, when you look at it, do you think Nigerians have had enough of corruption and poor governance in the country? Do you think that these protests might lead to something? Yes. So, yeah, um, you're right. I, I've covered the story um, right from the start, um, you know, early October, I think it was. And when it started, it was a very, we were all kind of very taken aback because Nigerian youth don't typically take to the streets. And I think that, um, you know, it was it was a surprising movement. It came out of nowhere and it happens very quickly. So NSARS, as that was the slogan, was against uh, police brutality, but quickly morphed into protests against bad governance, against, against unemployment, mass unemployment uh, um, amongst Nigerians' youth. 
And um, also, you know, the fact that Nigerians have to provide everything for themselves, healthcare, security, you know, um, everything. They have to really just provide these basic amenities that uh, other citizens expect their governments to provide in the social contracts. Um, but um, so it became obvious that it was going to be quite impactful. It was an impactful movement because the young people really mobilized themselves in a really effective and efficient way. They were using technology and social media and really um, efficiently organizing themselves. And I think it really rattled the establishment and they, they thought that because it was being so efficiently run that it was being powered by uh, some sort of opposition that was trying to destabilize the government. And that's a narrative that has been put out anyway. Um, but it took a dark turn when on the 20th of October um, in a place called Lekki, a relatively affluent uh, suburb of Lagos, um, some young protesters decided to defy a curfew that was put in place by the Lagos governor. And whilst they were there in the evening, they they were they they had you know the military we know now the military came to that scene and opened fire on on the protesters and you know the death toll is still you know kind of not confirmed but we know that a lot of people were injured and a lot of people um kind of were you know were hurt in the stampede and the chaos that you can imagine followed so you know that singular act, which is a very brute force um, response against peaceful prote protesters, has dampened the enthusiasm, uh, I will say, of the movement, which was, which at its at its height was a very inspiring movement for young people. It really just spread very quickly across the nation, and young people were just taken to the streets. It was a leaderless movement um, and and driven purely by the anger and the, and the injustice that they felt. So that 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 kind of very hardline response from the government has really killed that the the drive to take to the streets. But I think young people in Nigeria are just fed up. To be honest with you, you know, this is a generation they they told me that they've never seen the benefits of the goodness of Nigeria. You know, this is an oil-rich country. They've never experienced what the boomer years experienced with free education, you know, um, good amenities and, and, and just the best of the country. They've never experienced that. They've, they were born into hardship and, and they've had enough of that hardship. And I think COVID, the, you know, during the lockdown and the, to the effects of those few months of, you know, kind of um, the pandemic really exacerbated those concerns as well. So it was a bit of a perfect storm, I think, um, uh, that, that kind of pushed all of these young people out onto the streets. And what, what is sinister and what is happening right now, which is really very, very worrying development is that young people are being targeted They've been arrested for taking part in a protest. Um, some of them have had their accounts frozen by Nigeria's central bank. 
Some of them have fled the country because they've been threatened. Some tell us that they've been offered money to recant their testimonies about what happened during that shooting. Um, so there is a very, very dark streak right now uh, in the aftermath of the protests that people are having to deal with, that they are terrified. And the state's response is to go after people who just took to the streets to demand their rights, which is actually enshrined in Nigeria's constitution. Well, you're using digital and multimedia platforms to craft a, a new narrative, if you like, for Africa. What is that narrative? What is it that people in the West aren't hearing? What is the narrative that you want to convey? Yes. So the narrative that I think is increasingly coming out, and but wasn't previously, is that Africa is not a basket case continent. Africa is full of innovation and full of people who are driven and determined and who are who really want to take control of their futures if given the opportunities. They're hampered by bad leadership in a lot of cases, lack of opportunities. One of the greatest things about Nigeria in particular is its human capital, this teeming youth bulge, as, as it's been described. Um, the median age is 195 in Nigeria. Uh, so, you know, th these are the people, these are the future of the country, but that, that capital is not being harnessed. And, um, you know, the, the leaders really need to kind of find a way to, to create um, a way for young Nigerians in particular to, to contribute to, because they are so full of resource and, and talent and ambition and and they're enterprising. And if only they had a little bit of an enabling environment, they could do that. So what I want people outside of Africa to consider about the continent is that it's not a place for pity or poverty or the bombs and the bullets narrative. There's just so much, I see so much um, amazing resourcing, resourceful um, things happening there. You know, um, two young Nigerians have just had their company bought by Stripe which uh, is owned by the founder of PayPal. Uh, I think I think that's PayPal, yeah. Um, and, and the company's called Paystack. We have Andela, which came out of Nigeria and uh, was, it's now, you know, was bought by, um, by a, a, a Silicon Valley um, in, investor. So there's a lot going on, particularly in the tech scene, a lot going on in the music scene. Afrobeats, a lot going on in, in the film industry, Nollywood. These are things that can rival, if given the right opportunity and if, if the right investment can rival any of these industries around the world. So I really want people to think about Africa not as a place or where you go and save people, <laughs> you know, uh, as a place where people have agency and where you can have uh, equal partnerships to to create and to um, work with people on the continent. Well, speaking of music, I have to ask you, Stormzy or Burner Boy? Oh, wow. <laughs> that is, uh, oh, uh, it's got to be Burner Boy. It's got to be Burner Boy. It's got to be the African giant. You know, he calls himself the African giant and he's uh, unapologetic un about his, um, who he is as a performer and who he is as a, as a musician. Um, Stormzy though, I mean, 
Stormzy's got a heart of gold. So it's a bit of an unfair comparison making me choose. <laughs> Stormzy sends people to Cambridge, but for goodness sake. So I love them both, but I think um, Burner Boy's music just edges it a little bit for me. <laughs> Well, Stephanie, you are an amazing journalist and it's wonderful to watch you report on CNN. You're a role model for so many women and women of colour all around the world. So thank you for what you do. Thank you so much, Emma. I, I really enjoyed our conversation today.